see how it's see how it's working. All right, thank you. Well, the title of the message is the tale of the tape, and I have uh, enlisted the help of my friend Cody Bruin. And Cody, I want to ask you how many inches from about the middle of the communion table to where you're seated. Can you yell it out? Forty inches. Forty inches. Now, Cody, if I were to ask you, hold on here, because I know this is ten inches right here. Fifty? Fifty feet. I'm glad you said that, Cody. Because if you said it was fifty feet, and I said... You've got Mr. Holtrip behind you, and he is an expert in these kinds of things. If I said, I want it to be 50 inches, what would you tell me? Would you say, you're nuts? Yeah, he's, if you can't see Cody, he's shaking his head. You're nuts. This is the bottom line. From the center of the communion table all the way to Cody, we have... 50 feet, not 50 inches, not 50 centimeters, not 100 inches, not 100 feet, but there's a a specific parameter from Cody to the communion table. One of the characteristics of our culture, and I'm sure that you have uh, encountered this more often than you would like to admit, is a general lack of of accountability. Let me just make sure that I'm not totally out to lunch this morning. Would you raise your hand if you feel there's a general lack of accountability in school, in the business world, in homes, in politics? You think, wow. Some philosophers who embrace this kind of a model, this flexible model of accountability, take it to the extremes. That is, if there is no accountability, our lives in the final analysis do not count. The French philosopher, and I would add the French atheistic philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre referred to life, and this was the, the extension of his worldview, he referred to life as a useless passion. Isn't that encouraging? Life, said Sartre, is a useless passion. It gets worse. His final verdict for the fate of human beings can be summed up, and I have this book on my Kindle. His worldview can be summed up in a one-title word, and it's the word nausea. Nausea. I feel sick, he would say, when I think about human existence. And so purposelessness, randomness, chance, Nausea, life is a useless passion, so said Jean-Paul Sartre. The view that is presented in the Word of God concerning human life is in sharp contrast to what we have seen in Sartre. We think about human life, and I, I get motivated by shots like this, shots that, that 
resound with victory and effort and human dignity. I want you to remember this morning that much to, ch- much to the chagrin of Jean-Paul Sartre, our decisions count. Our lives matter. As human beings who are made in the image of God, we are accountable. And as Cody has helped us illustrate this morning, when we talk about the tale of the tape, it is always accurate. Cody has told us that it's 50 feet. It's not 51 feet. It's not 60 feet. It's 50 feet. And so I want you to remember as we think about this theme of the tale of the tape, that every person in this auditorium will give an account to a holy God. And so I want you to think with me this morning. I want to ask a a general question, and then I'm going to get more specific. And as someone once said to me, you're getting close to meddling, Pastor. Here's the general question. How is life going for you? How are things shaping up? I want you to think this morning deeply about your motivations. What is it that drives you? What is it that causes you to do the things that you do? I want you to to think about your habits. What you do when you rise. What you do when you get in your car. What you do on your way to work. What you do during the rest of the day. All the way down to who do you sit with at lunch? What words flow forth from your mouths? What kind of television do you watch? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of friends do you associate? Why do you do the things you do? And then I want you to think about your goals. I want you to think about your goals in life. And once again, why do those goals drive you? Why do those goals drive you? And the most important question I can ask is this. Are you ready to give an account to a holy God? I had a friend by the name of James when I was in college. He was in high school at the time and I was one of his youth pastors. And James decided that getting serious with the Lord was not something he was interested in. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, maybe when I get older, maybe when I get married, maybe when I have some kids of my own, maybe when I have a house, maybe when I have some some cars, maybe when I start to, to earn money for retirement, maybe when I get into the prime of life, I will think about a relationship with God. The word of God says in no uncertain terms, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so are you ready to give an account of your life? Every thought, every word, every inclination, every deed, every action, every conversation, because we will all stand to give an account before, <laughs> excuse me, a holy God. In our last time together, two weeks ago, we saw the Apostle Paul probing the inner workings and the motivations of the human heart. We learned two weeks ago about what we referred to as the contours of creaturely rebellion. And we underscored the consequences for the unconverted man, for the unconverted woman, for the unconverted boy, for the unconverted girl. Romans 2.5 says it plainly. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself 
on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul elaborates. He digs deeper. He goes further by showing his response to two kinds of people. And may I say that the two kinds of people that we'll address this morning will affect every single person in this sanctuary. The two kinds of people are the faithful and the faithless. Some of you are faithful. You are living the Christian life. You stumble probably on a daily basis. But as God is your witness, you strive to be faithful before your God and before the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You are numbered among the faithful. And many of you this morning are numbered among the faithful. Some of you are not numbered among the faithful. However, you are faithless. You may say you're a Christian. You may come to church. You may even put uh, money in the offering basket. You may be involved in ministry. But if you have never surrendered your will and your ways and your dreams and your hopes and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never come to the foot of the cross and said, God, I repent of my sins, I turn from my sins, and I trust Jesus. To be my king, to be my lord, to be my CEO, to be my best friend, to be the ruler of my life. Then you are not a Christian. You stand among the faithless. And what we will see in this passage in Romans chapter 2 is that Paul the Apostle responds to these kinds of people. The faithful and the faithless. In two very specific ways. We will see this and this will be the truth point I want to give in advance this morning. God responds in two ways to these people. He will grant reward for the faithful and retribution for the faithless. So turn with me if you would in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and as, as you make your way to Romans chapter 2, I would invite you to stand as we read the Word of God together as a church family. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 11. This is God's holy, authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are excited to make our way ever so slowly through the book of Romans. We have learned about the the consequences of creaturely rebellion. And today, I pray that you would would help us as uh, Paul the Apostle helps us to, to dig deeper and see how you, the holy God of the universe, respond to the faithful and what that entails and how you respond to the faithless and what that entails as well. 
Lord, for the faithful, I pray that you would grant encouragement and strength and that each one who is numbered among your people would leave this morning with, with new resolve, a new desire to press forward into the Christian life and that you would receive the glory. For those who are faithless, for those who are not yet Christians, I, I pray that they would see the reality of their situation. As we learned in class this morning, it, I have no ability to convince anyone. It is only the Holy Spirit who will draw the elect to himself. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do this work in the heart of someone today. More than one person, Lord, that you would cause a person to respond to the wonderful, gracious gift of the gospel that is found in your son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So before we take a look at God's response to these two kinds of people, the faithful and the faithless, I want you to remember five things about God by way of introduction. And it really is a, an astounding thing as we look at the first verse in this text, verse 6. I want you to read it together one more time with me. He will render, that is God will render to each one according to his works. It might surprise you if I told you that there is... A very long sermon in this verse, but Lord willing, we will get all the way to verse 11 this morning. So by way of introduction, notice five things about what we can learn about our God. Number one, notice from this verse that God's response is absolutely compelling. When Paul says that God will render to each one, he is using a, a Greek word. It's the Greek word translated render, which means this. It means to pay back, to pay back, to repay. It means to either reward the faithful or to grant retribution for the faithless. When the Bible says that God will render to each one, we need to remember that every person in the final analysis, at the last moment, at the judgment seat of Christ, every person will receive exactly what he or she deserves. And so we see that God's response is absolutely compelling. Number two, I want you to see that God's response is comprehensive. Notice the phrase, each one. I want you to remember this morning in, in our politically correct environment, in our, 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 the world that we live in is tolerant, where no one gets left out. There isn't anyone who doesn't receive a reward. Here we see that God's response is comprehensive. That is, no person will receive immunity. Now, my wife and I don't watch the show anymore, but I, I remember... And we haven't talked about it for years, but I remember the first year when the show Survivor was on TV. You remember that show? Is it still on? I think it is. We lost interest years ago. But we used to get together with friends, and we would, we would have pizza parties and dinner events. And, man, we were excited. We'd watch Survivor every week. And the one thing I remember about that show is one of the, the perks... One of the ways you get ahead in that show is that through a series of events and challenges, you would be granted immunity. 
immunity. That is, you're off the hook. And I think that's the way that a lot of people live in our culture. They feel like we're good people. We're nice people. We're philanthropists. We donate our money. We give our time to the church. We're good people. So at the end of the age, God will grant me immunity. After all, I'm good. I'm nice. I'm kind. Please remember, there will not be a soul who will be granted immunity in God's economy. God will respond to each and every person. I love the Greek here. You know what each and every person means? Each and every person. Each and every person. No one's off the hook. There will be no immunity. Drop down to verse 11. And as I read these words this morning, it sent shivers up my spine. I hope it sends shivers up your spine. For God shows no partiality. In the context here, he's referring to Jews and Greeks. Most of us here, probably all of us here, are Greeks or Gentiles. Very few of us are Jews. But whether you're a Jew or a Gentile... There is no partiality. And he's speaking primarily to the Jews because the Jews have a tendency to say this, but I'm a a Jew. God owes me something. I'm a Jew. I'm in the lineage of Abraham. And every time that person says something like that, these words should shine like a, like a, 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 a beacon of light on their heart and on their mind. For God shows no Partiality. Number three, please notice that God's response is clear. This passage, verse 6, along with many others, is not ambiguous. We are not left to guess at how God will respond to the conduct in our lives. My fear, one of my fears as a pastor, is that people in our culture, both the faithful and the faithless, have this mindset that God will just let them through, that it doesn't matter how I live. After all, God is a God of love. And indeed, God is a God of love. But I have selected a few passages that I want to have you turn and look at with me. Passages that that I want you to read, because if you are engaged in any of this behavior My prayer is that God, the Holy Spirit, would use these passages to wake you up, to realize, that's me. I need to change. I need to repent. And so hold your finger in Romans chapter 2 and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And I, I have to warn you, these are absolutely riveting Verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the hope that Paul offers the Corinthians. And such were some of you. But you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When I read this passage, I remember a, a season of my life in the church that we came from in Legrand, And the senior pastor and I were working desperately with a, a young man who was addicted to alcohol. And he would go in and out of treatment time after time after time. And finally it appeared like he was making progress. And there was a season in his life that we were excited for him and the progress he was making. And he had prepared to write an article in the church newsletter. And we were excited to have him submit that article. And then word came back to us that he was battling alcoholism once again. That he was, he was actually not battling it. He succumbed to it. To use a stark word here, he was a drunkard. And so we pulled the article and said it would be an act of hypocrisy to have you submit that article as someone who is a drunkard day after day after day. How do you think that went over? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It was not pretty. The finger started to point at us. You're judgmental. You're Pharisees. You're mean-spirited. How dare you take that opportunity away from me? Notice that the Word of God says here, For all these things, Paul says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It gets more intense. Revelation chapter 21, if you would turn there. Revelation chapter 21, reading in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look over one page at Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This describes the faithful, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And here's a description of the faithless. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Notice in all of these passages, we see this common theme of sexual sin, namely sexual immorality. May I remind you that God places a premium on holiness. That God is calling his people to a life of purity. God's response here in Romans chapter 2 verse 6 is clear. He will render to each one according to his works. Number four, I want you to see that God's response is consistent. That is, each of God's responses are absolutely consistent with his character. One of the Reformed theologians of a generation ago, Louis Burkhoff, said this. He said, the fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to a law. 
One of the men who has influenced me a great deal in my life is Dr. John Frame. And Dr. Frame says this. He says, God's righteousness includes His righteous standards, which are revealed in the law of God, His righteous character, and His righteous deeds. And what Frame reminds us of is this, is that God's righteous standards, His righteous character, and His righteous deeds are all in sync. There is no inconsistency in God. And so the Word of God repeatedly tells us over and over again that God is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. It was a few weeks ago I made the statement that may have shocked some of you. I said that God would never condemn or judge an innocent person. I repeat that again. God would never condemn or judge an innocent person. What's the problem? No one's innocent. No one's innocent. And so there will not be a person in the final analysis who can say, I didn't have enough light. I didn't have enough revelation. I didn't hear about Jesus. The word of God, the law of God is written, Romans 2 says, on the heart of every man. Psalm 111.7 says, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. In Daniel 4.37, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the story about Nebuchadnezzar. God sends him out to pasture. He grows those fingernails like Tom Hanks in Castaway. He grows a long beard. He rebels against God, but one day he came to his senses. Nebuchadnezzar offers praise to God. He honors the God of heaven. For all of his works are right, said Nebuchadnezzar, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Mom and dad, if you have a wayward daughter or a wayward son, don't give up. Nebuchadnezzar was far removed from God's grace. He was in a season where he was shaking his fist at the God of heaven, at the King of heaven. And God brought him to a place where he gave him sanity, where he called out to the living God. Revelation 15.3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And so we see here in Romans 2, 6, God's response to the faithful and the faithless is always, always, always consistent. Finally, and this is where the rubber meets the road, God's response is commensurate. God's response is commensurate. That is, God's response is always in proportion to our works and our deeds. I almost shudder to say it. Oh, recipients of the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. But that is the teaching of God's word, that his response is proportionate to our works and deeds. Listen to Matthew sixteen twenty seven. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will, look at Romans 2, 6, repay each person according to what he has done. 
Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay, Romans 2, 6, each one for what he has done. And so as we read this verse, he will render to each one according to his works. We see God's response is compelling and comprehensive and clear and consistent. And his response is commensurate. With that, I invite you to dig deeply into this passage as we look at two very important headings. First, the reward for the faithful. The reward for the faithful. And in order for us to understand what Paul is talking about when I refer to the reward for the faithful, we need to come to grips with what I like to refer to as the marks of the faithful. What does it look like to stand among the faithful? And what I want you to see this morning is that it primarily means this. It means that there's a pattern of good works. I got to tell you that when I say a pattern of good works, when I see in Romans 2, 6 that we will receive either reward or retribution based on our works, it causes me to tremble. Because most of you know how the doctrine of justification by faith, how important it is to me, how important it is to Christ's fellowship, how important it is to the evangelical church, how important it is to Protestantism. But what I fear is this. We have so marveled at the doctrine of justification by faith alone that we have forgotten that faith is not alone. Faith is not alone. The reformers used to say that we are saved by faith alone, but our faith is not alone. That is to say, when God gives you Grace, when he regenerates your sinful heart, gives you the ability to believe when you become a Christian, by definition, good works will flow. You see, you're not saved by your good works. There's no way any of us can be saved by our good works. But we learn this. We will be rewarded for the works we perform. And so there is a pattern of good works. That word works is translated from the Greek word erga, which means something that people do or cause to happen. You look around Christ Fellowship and there's a lot going on. You look in your, your bulletin, there's a lot going on. All throughout the week, good things are happening. But here's an important reminder one more time. Remember that good works never save. We're going to see this. It's going to take a while to get there, but look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. John MacArthur says, Salvation is not by works, but it will assuredly produce good works, close quote. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Once again, the reformers who were champions of the doctrine of justification went to great lengths to remind us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, every justified person 
will bear good fruit to the glory of God. May I make this very plain and simple. If you claim to be justified and you have no desire for church, no desire for the word of God, no desire to pray, no desire to worship, no desire to be with the people of God, no desire to serve God, you are not a Christian. I said it. No one wants to say that. But this is the message we need to hear in our culture. Every justified person will bear good fruit to the glory of God. Therefore, good works become then a supernatural outgrowth of justifying grace. So here's this pattern of good works. And I know what is on your mind. I think what's on your mind is what does it look like? What do these good works look like? Let me walk you through a pattern of good works, what the Bible repeatedly refers to as fruit. And this has been one of the questions I I have received over the years. And that is, Pastor, what does it mean to be a fruit bearer? What is fruit exactly? And so a pattern of good works or fruit involves a commitment to pursue what glorifies God. You say, I'm not interested in a, a, a commitment of glorifying God. Then you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Paul summarizes what these works entail. Verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. One of the things both an attorney will do and a pastor will do and a theologian will do is to overcome objections before they hit his or her desk. Does that make sense? And so one of the objections that, that may come is, I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This sounds like legalism. And this has nothing to do with legalism. This has to do with a regenerate human heart that flows forth in good works to the glory of God. Notice the word patience. The word patience in verse 7. It's a word that could be translated as steadfast endurance, or better yet, perseverance. And so the author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, with perseverance, the race that is set out before us. This little phrase, well-doing comes from the same word that is translated work In verse 6. And so a pattern of good works involves a commitment to pursue what glorifies God. Secondly, a pattern of good works or fruit is expressed in our life priorities. What are those life priorities? It's very simple. Loving God, which Jesus says is the most important thing. He said to the religious leaders to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In 1 Peter chapter Four, we see that one of the marks of a person who desires to glorify God is to, to serve God. He says it like this, who, whoever speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
One of the things that I yearn for at Christ Fellowship is that we would have more and more people who would step up to the plate and say, with the gifts that God has given me, with the talent that God has given me, with the time that God has given me, with the finances that God has given me, I want to pour forth my energy. I want to offer my gifts and my talents to the glory of God and serve in ministry. This is an example of what a pattern of good works or fruit looks like as it is expressed in our life priorities. Again, we love people. That is one way to show what our life priorities are. We pursue holiness. But the one that comes above them all is to, to glorify the living God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There was a book that was published over 20 years ago. It's a book that created a certain amount of controversy, and probably rightly so. And I had my own qualms with the book, but the title of the book was The Purpose Driven Life. And when Rick Warren penned The Purpose Driven Life, whether you agree or disagree, the one thing that he tapped into was this, is that people are created for a purpose. He was on track there. We are created for one reason and one reason only, to glorify the living God of the universe. And so Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the verse that many of us have memorized that we hear a lot on this campus is, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Finally, there's a pattern of good works or fruit bearing we'll see, which is an essential aspect of Christian life. And this, this is probably the controversial aspect of this message. As I have you turn to John chapter 15, Jesus makes it very plain that fruit bearing is not optional. Fruit bearing is part and parcel, part of the, the warp and woof of the Christian life. John fifteen eight, he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, proving to be my disciples. The response I hear is, but that sounds like legalism, but that sounds like works-based salvation. Once again, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and good works miraculously flow forth from justifying grace. We bear fruit to the glory of God. A few verses later in John 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That is, fruitful Christians are joyful Christians. Have you, have you picked up on this? That when you're fruitful, wow, the Christian life is exciting. It's filled with joy. When you're not fruitful, what a drag. What a drag. Leona, I don't know why. You just, I, I look down and you're, you're just beaming. You're, you're radiating. Here's a woman who is, is leading a Bible study. And I shared with her this morning of the, the, the great things that I'm hearing about her Bible study. And I would, can I just call you out, Leona? Are you joyful? Oh, yes. See, you, you plug into ministry and you learn what joyful Christianity is all about. 
We learn here that fruitful lives also give evidence of saving faith. Verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. Here's the clincher, my friends. That is that Scripture teaches that we were created for I almost shudder to say it. Good works. But no shuddering is necessary because that's exactly what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's erga. Which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Here's one thing that we're also learning as a church family. As important as fruit is, as important as good works are, that we are utterly incapable of producing fruit in our own strength. Jesus says this in John fifteen four: Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And here's the bottom line. The only reason that any person has a pattern of good works or Christ-exalting fruit is because of the gospel. It's only because of the gospel. Loving God, serving God, pursuing God, pursuing, pursuing holiness, pursuing God in a passionate way, glorifying God from a, a heart of a person who has been revolutionized by the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way a person can truly seek the kingdom of God is if the gospel has transformed your life. And so the Bible tells us God will render each one according to his works. Such a person will receive eternal life. And then verse 10 reiterates this glorious truth, but glory and honor and peace for everyone It's like Paul's a broken record for everyone who does good, for everyone who does good. My question this morning is, as you make your way back to Romans 2, do you stand among the faithful saints? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? Well, there's a second response as we close. And the second response is, is separated in verse 8 by the word but. It's a word of transition. It's a word of contrast. And we come now face to face with our second heading. That is retribution for the faithless. And just like we saw that there are certain criteria to stand among the faithful, there are also certain criteria to stand among the faithless. And I, I must warn you, these are devastating and sobering. The primary mark of the faithless person is an ongoing pattern of sin. And you see the the two descriptors on the screen. Paul describes them as self-seeking and self-exaltation. Those are words that I have applied to what he's trying to communicate here. In verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking... Those who are self-seeking, it comes from a word in the Greek that means a strong desire for personal success without moral inhibitions. That is to say, I will do it my way apart from the law of God. I'll do it my way apart from the will of God. I'll do it my way apart from the word of God. 
something hit me by surprise as I was looking at James chapter 3. The author says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You say, Pastor, are you telling me I'm demonic if I'm self-seeking? That's exactly what the Word of God says. A pattern of sin that manifests itself in self-seeking and also in self-exaltation. Look at it in the latter portion of verse 8. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. That is, the self-exalted human being. The person who refuses to obey the truth but obeys unrighteousness. Now, the sobering aspect of this passage is that the Bible tells us that God, once again, will render to each person according to his works. Such a person falls under the mighty hand of God and under God's holy judgment. There will be, simply put, retribution for the faithless. A few passages, one in Romans 1.18, we've already studied this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? It's simply the punitive outworkings of God's righteous indignation at sin. You see, God, because he's a God of righteousness, a God of holiness, and a God of justice, he must because of who he is, because of his character, respond to those who are self-seeking and self-exalting with holy wrath. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so we see that it's not only wrath, it's also fury. Fury is the, the punitive outworkings of God's righteous indignation at sin. Listen to Revelation sixteen nineteen. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so every person who is self-seeking and self-exalting will face the wrath of God, the fury of God, the tribulation of God and distress that comes from God. As we look at the 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 tape that runs down the center aisle, the tail of the tape forces us to reconsider the pattern of our lives. For God will render to each one according to his works. The challenge of preaching in our generation is to minister to both the faithful, that you would be encouraged and equipped and challenged, but to also minister to the faithless. And so, do you stand among the faithful? Is there a pattern of good works in your life that can only be attributed to God's grace and the gospel that has transformed you? Or do you stand among the faithless, living for yourself, repudiating God, repudiating the good gifts of God, 
repudiating the gospel of God, standing in opposition to God. You see, the tale of the tape forces us to not only reconsider the pattern of our lives, it asks us a crucial question, and here is the crescendo of the sermon. And when I utter these words, I utter them with fear and trembling because I know how it will sound. As we think about the tale of the tape, I want to ask you this question. Do you measure up? That's hard to ask. Do you measure up? See, our culture tells us that you measure up by looking a certain way, by acting a certain way, by having a certain car, by having certain possessions, by going to a certain school. Do you measure up? I'm asking in a biblical frame of reference, do you measure up? That's shorthand for do you stand in right relationship to a holy God? And that is the, the, the most important question of the Protestant Reformation. How can a sinful person stand in the presence of a holy God? The only way we measure up is by fleeing to the cross of Christ. It's not anything that I do. It's not anything that I say. It's not anything that I accomplish. It's, it's nothing that, that I can do. The only way we measure up is by fleeing to Christ and finding refuge in his gospel and standing safe and secure in the shadow of the cross where sin is covered, where sin is atoned for once and for all. And as we find our rest, and this is the beauty of the Christian life, as we find our rest in the shadow of the cross, as our hearts have been regenerated, as our lives are being transformed, we bear fruit, good fruit, to the glory of God. Do you stand among the faithful? Do you stand among the faithless? For God is very clear. He will render to each one according to his works. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would minister in a very real way now to two kinds of people, both the faithful and the faithless. I pray for the faithful, that they would be granted spiritual courage, that they would be granted assurance. Lord, we recognize that every faithful person here stumbles on a daily basis, but yet you consider them faithful as they have fled to Christ, as they are safe in the, the shadow of the cross, their sin has, has been forgiven, separated as far as the east is from the west, buried in the sea of forgetfulness, hidden behind your back. You remember their sin no more. And so may the faithful depart today with those words of encouragement for the faithless. Lord, I pray that you would do a, a work in the heart of someone today, that they see that... They've been trying to measure up by the things they do, even by the things they believe, but they've come to the conclusion that their works are nothing but filthy rags in your sight, that they need to flee to the cross so that they would be forgiven of all their sin, that they would repudiate pornography, that they would repudiate lawlessness, that they would repudiate uh, uh, living in a way that dishonors the holy God of the universe. Lord, we, we desperately want to be a, a, a light, in a dark place here in this community. So would you give us the strength to do it? Would you remind us of the importance of bearing good fruit to the glory of God? In Jesus' name, amen.